You sing like those who have been redeemed. Good for you. Um, welcome. Very glad that you're here. And for our uh, virtual broadcast audience, really glad that you're joining us today. I know so many people were not able to be here in the auditorium and um, they're very happy that we have the technology that they're able to be part of this together. So I'm glad that you're here. Glad that you're here online with us. I'm going to anchor us in Acts chapter 2 before we pray together. Look with me on the screen. Verse 22, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Praise God for that verse. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for the reality that it is true, all that we have just declared, everything that we did through song and what we just read in written word is true. It was impossible for Jesus to be held. So we thank you that we get to be part of declaring that reality. What we want to understand better, Father, is how does it make a difference to us how does it affect our life? And I pray that you would shape our understanding right now. So be at work, Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Guide our understanding. And as a result of this, Father, change our lives. Affect us for the sake of your kingdom. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. amen. There's a very good chance that in an auditorium of the size of this many people here, on Easter morning, I would they say that I'm surrounded by a majority of individuals who believe that Jesus is risen. If that's you, say amen. amen. Knowing that that's a reality for many Americans, I want you to see a statistic that's on the screen. It comes from Lifeway Research, and it says, and it might be surprising to you, that two out of three Americans agree with you. It says specifically, two out of three Americans believe the biblical account of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus are completely accurate. So if you go shopping this week, you're in a store, you're at work, chances are that if you're among 10 people, six to seven of them are thinking the same way that you're thinking. If you just said amen that you agree with that, they're on the same page with you. The issue is, what does the resurrection actually mean for me? We may believe that the resurrection happened, but how does it affect my life today? If you're new to church, I want you to hear this very clearly. The resurrection absolutely means proof. It's proof that you can have a new beginning. The proof is that God accepted Jesus' death as payment. And you might be saying, payment for what? Payment for you, if you will. Payment for you personally. The resurrection is proof that God accepted the death of Jesus as payment for our sins. The resurrection is proof that God accepted that payment. Because we all have sin, sin has to be dealt with. Therefore, there has to be a payment. And that payment, Scripture says, is actually a ransom, a ransom by which we were bought back. Thomas Watson is an individual who lived in the 1600s. He was known as a Puritan. Maybe growing up in grade school, you learned about the Puritans. He lived around mid-1600s, around 1680. He wrote this insight I wanted to share with you this morning. You see it on the screen. The doctrine of redemption by Jesus Christ is a glorious doctrine. It is the marrow and quintessence of the gospel in which all a Christian's comfort lies. 
Great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It costs more to redeem us than to make us. That's an amazing insight. Yep, we absolutely are a carbon-based life form. We are made of the dirt of the earth. Science and the Bible agree. From dust we came to dust we shall return. Dust to dushes, dust to dust, ash to ashes, right? So we're a complex biological life form, and we have a soul, but we're made from dirt. And Thomas Watson was right on point when he said, it cost more to buy us back than it did to make us, because to buy us back costs the very life of God. This cosmic prisoner swap is recorded for us actually in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me show it to you. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed, the word is lutro, I'll get that in a minute, it's a Greek word, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ." That's a phenomenal statement. It's amazingly articulate, and it's perhaps the most concise description of the doctrine of Christology I can find in the New Testament. Christology meaning the study of Christ. He really boiled it down into a very concise thought there. But look at who wrote it, a former professional fisherman, someone who is an eyewitness to the events of Easter weekend. Peter had a front row seat when this cosmic ransom went down. See, in 64 AD, Peter's sitting down to write what you just saw in 1 Peter. He's a very aged man. He's within a year or two years of being executed for the name of Jesus. History tells us that he was executed or crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified right side up like Jesus. When he's 62, 64 years old, around 64 AD, Peter looks back on this period of time of this resurrection weekend, and he writes that beautiful, beautiful thought. And he says that God exchanged the blood of this perfect lamb to pay an eternal price that I am absolutely incapable of paying. I have no ability to pay back what God needed. The imagery for this comes from the first century, actually the first century slave trade. In the Roman Empire, there were 60 million people who were slaves serving under those who were the upper class. Now, you could go into slavery through a variety of things. Perhaps you were sold by someone who owned you previously, or perhaps you were a captive as a prisoner of war, or maybe your parents sold you into slavery because they were so poor they couldn't feed you, and at least you would be fed if you were a slave in someone's household. And a lot of people went into slavery because they sold themselves, they were bankrupt and they couldn't earn a living. So there's a variety of ways that you could earn yourself into slavery by getting wages back, but once you were a slave, you didn't get out. And very likely within the early church, Peter, when he's writing this, has got a church that's filled with former slaves and present slaves, people who have been freed and yet people who are still in bondage. So that's where the imagery comes from, and this word lutro pops out of what Peter just wrote. Look, look with me at the definition, to redeem, to purchase, release by paying a ransom. Now, I told you it's, it's rooted in the ancient system of slavery, but here's what's going on. If you were a slave, someone could pay lutro. 
They could redeem you out of slavery. If they saved up enough money, they could buy you back. And can you imagine if all your life you've been a slave and you've been looking forward to that day when someone would buy you back? What a precious, precious gift that would be. That's what Peter's writing about here. How precious that was. And it wasn't with silver or gold, he says, though. We were bought back with the blood of Christ. But long before Peter could ever ever write that beautiful truth in 1 Peter, he had to grasp this reality himself. While he had a front row seat, he clearly did not comprehend what was going on. He didn't yet know why he had to connect the dots of Jesus' death and resurrection and why it was crucial to his own life. Peter's in this place where we're looking at this morning. You're going to see he's thinking it's great for Jesus. It worked out well for him, but I got a huge failure in my life. So Peter's in this place where he's like many Americans. He arrived at the place of believing that Jesus was actually resurrected, but does he actually know how it matters to him? To understand this, you have to back up just 48 hours before the resurrection. If you back up just a few moments before the resurrection on that early Sunday morning, you find that the followers of Jesus were consumed with massive loss because they were so attached to the one who's now in the tomb. All their life was intertwined to this particular one. They were inseparably linked. And now Jesus is dead. And yes, he could raise other people, but who's going to raise him? He's dead. And nothing can change it. And so the Bible records that they were filled with despair and they were filled with fear. But then came these explosive moments of Sunday morning. And these crazy rumors began spreading virally across the city and out into the countryside. And, and no one dares believe it. They're speaking in whispered tones because Rome is trying to arrest those who follow Jesus. And, and the Pharisees, they want to punish them. So no one wants to speak out loud. Uh, this very thing that they're hearing, that Jesus is actually walking and talking. The disciples were so much in need of being convinced about these things that they hear about. They had to personally see him walk and talk and eat in order to convince them. If you haven't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the four Gospels before, I really encourage you to do that because they record exactly that. They were consumed with fear. They had to be convinced. They were not easily buying into this. Now, at the moment that we least expect it, at the pinnacle of the greatest moment in history, God hits the brakes to eat breakfast. I'm not joking. Breakfast on the beach. That's what you're about to see in John 21. Watch this. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, Tiberias is the name of one of the rulers of Rome. They renamed the sea, but actually called in the Bible the Sea of Galilee. They're one and the same, Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias. So we find them going there. But John says they did this after these things. After what things? After the resurrection. After all the events of chapter 20, we find these guys no longer in Jerusalem. Sometimes during the 40 days after the resurrection, most of the 11 disciples follow Peter to the lake. They've got no business being there. God didn't tell them to go there. He actually told them to go someplace else. 
Now, if you're new to church, you want to understand that between the resurrection of Jesus and His ascension into heaven, there's 40 days that went by. And during those 40 days, Jesus would appear and disappear, and they never knew when He was coming. Well, the disciples have already seen Him twice to this point. They're about to see Him a third time. We're told this in verse 2. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, which means the twin, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of His disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. So if you add the names up, seven of the 11 disciples, 12 would be normal, but Judas has already killed himself because he betrayed Jesus. So there's 11 remaining, and seven of the 11 decide to spend the night on the open water with Peter, and I would argue with you it's not for recreation. That's not why they're there. See, fishing is what Peter knows. He was raised in the trade. He knows the industry really well. And Peter's decide to return to something that's very familiar and very safe because he's had a major fail in his life. We understand when things like that happen that we would have that nature to do that. We've all been tempted to do similar things. We've had failures in our life. Things don't go the way we want them to go. We want to retreat and go back to something that's very, very safe, something that we know. Yet, if you know the Bible, you understand that Jesus had chosen these guys personally, he chose them to be fishers of men. Now, perhaps if you've grown up in church, you've heard that term before, but what you might not know is that term is actually attached to the Greek philosophers. It predates Jesus. The philosophers would sit around and talk about how they could catch mankind with the truth. That's exactly what Jesus invited them to do. Matthew 4, verse 19, I follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. But that was years earlier. Now these professional fishermen have just spent a useless night out on the water at their nets. And verse 3 said, they caught nothing. Verse 4, But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So into this moment, Jesus suddenly appears on the shore. And as I mentioned, this is one of the three times that He shows up to them at this moment. Now, either they can't clearly see Him because of the mist on the water in the early morning, maybe there's a little bit of a fog, or they're so focused on their nets and doing their work, they aren't actually looking to see who it is, or there's something more going on. I vote for the something more. I'll show you in a minute. Don't let this pass too quickly, though. God is standing on a beach. And if you go back just one chapter to chapter 20, you have the resurrection of Jesus in context. God the Son has become Jesus the man. He willingly has died on the cross for the sins of the world. They wrapped him in linen, buried him in a tomb. In three days, he comes bursting forth. It's so powerful of an event, it actually triggers seismic activity on the place of the face of the earth. It causes seismic activity, church. The tectonic plates in the crust of the earth shift because it was so powerful. Watch with me, Matthew 28, verse 2. A severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. The Bible calls it a megas seismos, a great shaking, an event like nothing the world had ever seen before or since has just taken place. 
And yet, now the same God stands on a quiet beach early in the morning, and He's watching. What do I do with that? How do I understand that? This way. God's giving space for failure. There's been failure in their lives. The Bible said that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. When there's failure, God can bring good out of the failure, but He's got to give space for failure to do its work. And that's exactly what's going on here. What Jesus does next is very telling. He simply asks a question. And the question anticipates a negative reply. Now, you're going to see him call out to them, and he's going to call out to them children, and he's not insulting them. The word padia that's used there, it actually is a term of intimacy between people who are very close to each other. But there also is an implication within that term, padia, of immaturity. Watch what Jesus says. Verse 5, so Jesus said to them, children, padia, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no, which is another fail for them. Now, Peter has come up with his own plan, and God's standing on the shore, and he calls out to Peter, how's that working out for you? Not so good. It's not working out actually so great. My experience, church, is this reality. It's through my failure that God has brought me face to face with His capacity. How about you? It's through our failure that God brings us face to face with His capacity and His ability to meet us right at the point of need. And so the one who created fish calls fish, John 21 verse 6, and He said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. This is like God saying, you want fish? I'll give you fish. And that's exactly what happens. Now, no doubt they're exhausted. They've been out all night on the water. They're frustrated, and they clearly, according to the earlier verse, they don't know who's speaking to them. Yet, remarkably, they listen. And the Bible indicates in the Greek language that Jesus speaks to them in a really authoritative tone. And so they yield, back to verse 6, part B, so they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. I wonder if you would imagine with me right now a Frisbee floating through the air. When you think of a net from the first century and individuals who threw the net, they were really good at it. These guys are professionals. They know exactly what they're doing. So think of something the size of a trampoline in someone's backyard, a round disc-shaped net. It's usually folded up and quite small, and then when they toss it out, it becomes like a Frisbee floating through the air, and it settles down into the crystal blue waters. And every time it does, you can even see it today on YouTube. Google it up. They still fish this way. It, it makes a whoosh sound as it hits the water. It's very peaceful. And the Creator who directed fish away during the night so they wouldn't catch anything now commands His creation to respond. And the net is so full that according to verse 10, these men who make their living at the sea, they cannot haul it in because they catch 153 very large fish, which would put them in the category of 21 fish per men, which I think is way over the fishing limit, but that's another issue. I love this component, that even when we're out of step with His will, 
He's still at work pursuing us. This is precisely what you see going on here. See, Jesus could leave them alone. He doesn't have to have the conversation. He doesn't have to begin to talk to them. He could leave them in the boat. He didn't even have to show up. But God is still pursuing them. So I would ask you this morning to put yourself in that boat for a moment. Maybe this is you. Maybe you've chased your own direction all your life. Maybe you've tried your own solutions. Possibly you even walked away from God. Too many things went in a bad direction for you. And then God shows up. And he calls to your life from a beach and says, how's that going for you? That's your God. That's the God who pursues us. Now let's take this scenario to a deeper level because obviously this is not about fishing. Verse 8, they were not far from the land but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Now, John writes this from the perspective of an eyewitness and, and you can get that because he gives all these kind of details as you're reading it. But I'm thinking at this moment, this John who's writing this, because he's in his 90s and he's looking way back over the course of his life, he has to smile in this moment. I can't get out of my head the image that comes from Finding Nemo in, in which they capture the fish in the net and as the fishermen are trying to pull the net in, the fish are swimming together in the opposite direction because they don't want to be caught and this is what I see going on in this verse. They, they're dragging this net full of fish behind them trying to get to shore. They can't get it in the boat in verse 9. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Now, John's in this 90-plus year age range. He's a 20-something young man when this is going on, when all these things, and 70 years later, he's looking back over the course of his life, and he's remembering, and he still recalls that he was part of an all-nighter. There was this chill in the air, and they were on the open water, and, and a beach fire with a warm glow of the coals, and the fresh fish, and the aroma of baked bread. I'm sure it lights him up. I'll just speculate with you for a moment, just speculation, that the God who fed the 5,000 on another beach one day has just created this environment for them. The same God who created food for the 5,000 all of a sudden has bread and fish on a fire. Watch where this goes. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full to, to land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. So you obviously can tell you're looking through a, the lens of an eyewitness here. Peter apparently is a very big guy of considerable strength. He pulls the entire net to shore by himself. Now Jesus is already cooking fish. He's got fish. He's got bread. He tells them to bring the rest of the fish with them. Verse 12, Jesus said, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. The, the Greek language is very specific here. It says they wanted to scrutinize him. They wanted to examine, but they're afraid to do it. So they know, but at the same time, they still want to ask, why are they afraid to? This perplexes me a little bit because these are the exact same guys who throughout the course of years have asked Jesus all kinds of questions. They've never been afraid to do it. So why are they so timid here? Dr. Wright gives us a little bit of an insight of what's going on here. Look with me. 
He wrote this in 2003. It seems to reflect a primal moment of simultaneous recognition and puzzlement, an awareness of something they can hardly put into words except as a question, and a question they dare not to ask. Something's different about Jesus. He appears differently. Are they in awe because he's a resurrected king? For sure, absolutely. What's keeping them in suspense, though? Why are they in fear? I think there's fear of retribution because they've been doing exactly things that God didn't tell them to do. They're out doing something other than what he asked them to do. And questions like this in the past have left them in hot water. They know that it's the Lord, yet each of them have failed Jesus. Remember the night that Jesus was arrested? He's put on trial. He's beat. They all ran. None of them stayed with Him. They have abandoned Him. And now Jesus is cooking breakfast for them on the beach. And I hope you're seeing this the way that I'm seeing this because I'm seeing this as a full call to fellowship. He's beginning the restoration process. Go with me to verse 13. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So apparently these guys are so overwhelmed by the experience that Jesus has to literally put the food in their hands. I'm thinking they're gawking at this moment. And the way the, English, or the uh, Greek language reads here, he physically has to place it into their hands with their mouth open, they're looking at him. So Jesus makes them take the food. I wonder if you like walking on the beach in the morning. Maybe you haven't done it recently. It's coming into the warmest part of the year. Perhaps you'll get an opportunity to do that. Early in the morning is the best time. Nobody's out playing Frisbee on the beach yet. The, the gentle lapping of the water against the shoreline is usually very, very still and very peaceful. And usually you hear nothing but gulls or ducks in the distance. This is the setting that Peter is in in this moment. He's had his morning swim. If you read the story, you understand what I'm talking about. He's had the opportunity to dry off and to warm himself up next to this fire. And now he's satisfied his hunger with this breakfast. And then comes verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I wish the Bible had sound effects with it. Because right here, the sound effect would be like that of a screeching tire or, or maybe cars clashing together. You might be looking at that and thinking, where does that come from? Simon, do you love me more than these? My experience is that God never makes it easy when we are living in disobedience. So you might be thinking, where did that come from? Why did he ask him that? Well, here's the backstory. Peter failed, and he failed big, in such a big way that it led him to the point of actually denying any relationship with Jesus. And now he's gone back to his old life. So he's actually gone backwards, and this is the equivalent of God saying to Peter, Peter, what are you doing, man? God is calling him out. And one of the clues by which we understand that that's what's going on here is how Jesus actually refers to Peter. Look with me on the screen at verse 15. Simon, son of John, 
Why is he not calling him Peter? Simon, son of John, is what he was called way back in the beginning. Simon, son of your daddy. He's known as Simon. Jesus changes his name to Peter and calls him the rock and says, upon this rock I will build my church. But he's not calling him the rock here because Peter hasn't been behaving like a rock. So why son of John? Because Peter's gone backwards. And I'm thinking in this moment he's actually cringing. God, please call me Peter. He calls him son of John, and he's being brought face to face with his failure because God never beats around the bush. So he says, do you love me more than these? The Greek word that's used here is the word hutos. Hutos can mean this or that. Do you love me more than the fishing nets? Do you love me more than hanging out with your buddies and going fishing? Do you love me more than your boats? God's calling him out on that because he's actually chosen something other than what God called him to do. Nothing wrong with fishing, nothing wrong with hanging out with your buddies. There's a really interesting wordplay that's going on here in the Greek language because Jesus uses the word agapeo. When he says, do you love me? He says, do you agapeo me more than these? Agapeo is the highest form of love. You have somebody in your life who's precious to you, that you're very attached to, that you would feel like your life would absolutely collapse if that person was gone. That's agapeo love. And Jesus is saying, do you actually agapeo me? Do you have this total commitment? It's the highest form of love. And this goes right to the heart issue. Because Peter has a really high opinion of his loyalty. Peter has regarded himself as the model of dedication to Jesus. The night that Jesus was arrested, before the trial, while they're in the upper room, Jesus said to all the followers, you're all going to leave me. He's just prophesying in advance, saying, this is what's going to happen. And Peter had a response to him. Look with me at Peter's response, Matthew 26, 33, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. I absolutely am committed to you. So you can easily compare these two scenes that are going on here. You've got two fires burning. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and denied by Peter, Peter's warming himself at a fire. And he's fired upon with three questions. And he denies Jesus in every one of the three to the point that he actually says, I blankety blank, 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 don't know the man. Stop asking me. And now he's at another fire and he's warming himself by the fire, and he's being asked three more questions. And it does not take a genius to connect the dots of this event to his earlier denial. God is calling him out. So drop down with me to verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? John captures the word grieved here for a specific reason. If you've ever had Jesus push on your life so hard, you know exactly what's going on here. God will push and push and push and not relent for those whom he is pursuing after. And God is pushing here and he pushes hard. What's the reason for his grief here? Because there's been a change in the wording. Jesus isn't using agapeo now in the third question. He's using the word phileo. 
where we get the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, from. Phileo is the most common form. It's like bowling buddy kind of love, like the kind of guy I will go hang out with, but not all that attached to. Jesus is saying, do you even have that? I'm, I'm questioning whether or not you have even the weakest form of love, one that's less than devotion. So here's the implication that God's calling him out on. Your actions, Peter, have not reflected even the lowest level. What you say and what you do, they're two completely different things. So I'm asking you a question this morning that I ask myself on a regular basis. What are the these things in your life? What is the hutos? What are the things that can pull you off from track? And they can be people, and they can be situations, and they can be possessions, and they can be positions. He says in John 21, 15, do you love me more than hutos, these, these various things, these things that we allow into our life that prevent us, if we're a follower of Jesus already, they prevent us from maturing in Christ, or if we're not yet a believer, these would be the very same things that will block us because of bad experiences, because of bad times in our life. We may allow those things to become a blocker, and it's often triggered by failure. It's not always. It's not always self-inflicted, but many times it is. Sometimes just circumstances derail us. See, Peter at this point is like most Americans. He believes in the resurrection. He has to. Jesus is right in front of him. But he's totally missed the connection as to how the resurrection applies to his life, just like it does for yours. He's been missing the most important element of the resurrection. The most important element of the resurrection is this. The resurrection means the redeeming of humans. That those who believe that Jesus was raised from the dead get a completely new beginning, a new start in life. See, I'm taking you down this trail of 1 Peter because this very aged Peter is looking back on the events of the resurrection. The old Peter is looking back at the young Peter, and he's writing of this very issue that we just examined about this ransom that was paid to buy us out of the former life we used to be in. Let me wrap it up this way and take you all the way back around to where we just started a few minutes ago. 1 Peter 1, 17. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed, you were not lutro, you were not ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. What did Peter inherit from his father? the fishing business. Every man had his dad's business handed down to him. You weren't redeemed with fishing nets. You weren't redeemed with a boat. You were not redeemed with silver and gold, quote unquote. All those things in Peter's life couldn't do anything for him. And so he comes to the conclusion that that's just a futile way of life. Why did he come to that conclusion? Because those things were empty for him. God had called him to a higher responsibility, something greater, and he thought he blew it. And he did. He failed. 
He disobeyed. He denied. He disqualified himself. He took himself out because he believed he was disqualified until that morning on the beach when he discovered that the forgiveness of God was possible because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And therefore, he could be restored because of the effect of the resurrection. Because the resurrection meant that the payment had been made and he was now acceptable to God. Your past sins, whatever you committed 10, 20 years ago, yesterday, whatever you will commit today, whatever you will commit 10 years from now, Jesus died for all of those sins. One death for all time, for all the sins of the world, past, present, future. If you are committed to him, he forgives you for all of the sins in your life. So yes, Peter failed. Yes, he denied. Yes, he disobeyed. But the forgiveness because of the cross is available to him. And therefore, he can be restored because of the effect of the resurrection. And that explains why two weeks later, you find the exact same Peter, totally transformed, standing in the temple, saying to people, I got it. I got it. It makes sense to me. See, in Acts chapter 2, he actually arrived at the place where he understood that the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it meant a new beginning, even if you have betrayed Jesus. Look with me one more time. Verse 22, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death, but God raised him up again because it's impossible for him to be held in its power. That's Peter. Peter stood in the temple talking to thousands of people. Even though Jesus had been crucified and tortured, Peter has put his life at risk because he understands, I get it now. Because of the resurrection, I can have a brand new beginning. That's a really powerful statement for him to say to that crowd of thousands of people, you nailed him to the cross. But at the same time, he's pointing back at himself because he failed Jesus just like they did. If you need a second chance this morning, what you're hearing is great truth, especially if you came in the door feeling disqualified. Most people feel flawed. Most people feel disqualified. You're not the only one. The human race is full of individuals who feel exactly that way. And we feel that way deep down inside at our core because we are flawed. We know it. We understand it. And so we can identify with Peter because Peter is looking at what he did. And while that's beneficial to some degree because that's the very thing that drives us to want to see the Savior who can forgive us of our sins, but if we stay there and we live in those failures, that's the very thing that causes us to think, God will never forgive me. You don't know what I've done, Mark. And if you're thinking that right now and you're very tempted to say that statement out loud or even privately, I would say back to you, you're right. I don't know what you've done. I don't know your past. But Jesus does. 
He knows everything about you. He knew exactly what Peter did. He knew the absolute worst about Peter, and he pursued him anyways because he's the one who loves us the most. I know that on the authority of Scripture, Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, but though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hang with me on this illustration. I shared this on Good Friday. I'll do it again. Picture a group of guys who are in the military standing around. They're in a war zone, and somebody throws a grenade into the midst of the pile, and one of the individuals decides to jump on the grenade to save the lives of his buddies. Paul says that can happen. Somebody would decide to die for a good man. But who's going to die for a prisoner? Who among us would go to a prison knowing that somebody is condemned to death and they're on death row and would say to the warden, you know, I know you're going to put that guy to death this year, but I want to take his place. Scripture says that's exactly what Jesus did. We were all in that place, and yet Jesus died for us. And I want you to say amen if you agree with this, because of that truth that I just shared with you, Easter is a celebration. It's absolutely what you're seeing this morning. What is your responsibility? If you're already a believer in Jesus, you've got to check yourself and say, have I let some things in my way that have kept me from maturing in Christ? But if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, your responsibility is, the Bible says you have to acknowledge, you must confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You want forgiveness of your sins this morning. If you're new to this information, here's what you need to do. The Bible says that if you acknowledge Jesus died for your sins and you acknowledge that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen? Our responsibility is to follow him then. All that he called us to do. So you don't need me to talk you through it. You can do this in the quietness of your seat right now. You can simply tell God that you're a sinner in need of a savior. And I promise you, when you tell him you're a sinner, he will not be surprised, so don't let that keep you from doing it. He knows exactly where you're at. Tell him that you need Jesus as your Savior and confess your need to him. He will respond. He will give you forgiveness. Simply say to him, I need Jesus. I'm here to tell you, you can start all over again. You can have a brand new beginning. Everybody can. There is a new life in Jesus Christ. Scripture says this, Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means my standing before Him, your standing before Him, is not based on my feelings because my feelings betray me. Your feelings betray you. If God says you are free, you are free indeed. You are no longer condemned. You are forgiven in Jesus Christ. If you need to know more about this, there's Bibles out there in the atrium when you leave this morning. They're free. Please take them with you. There's a note inside them that I wrote. And it's to encourage you to examine yourself. How do I know that I'm actually saved? Read through the note. If you need a Bible, please take one with you. Right now, what I would love to do with you is pray with you. So I'm going to ask you to pray together with me, and then we're going to close out with a worship song. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for what we have just seen, the reality of your word coming to life because of the work of the Holy Spirit. We sense that you have caused us to have new understanding now who we are before you, 
and how we're supposed to respond as a result of that. I pray that you would use us this week and next week and next month and next year. Use us to be a representation of your kingdom and what it looks like to live as people who have been forgiven, that we might speak into the lives of other people who are desperately looking for hope. God, I ask for this in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.